Welcome to the HR Like a Boss podcast. I'm your host, John Bernadovich. Thank you so much for listening. Please consider liking, commenting, subscribing, and sharing with a friend. I've embarked on a journey to get to know amazingly awesome HR and business professionals with the hope to find out what it takes to do HR like a boss. On today's show, I'm delighted to be joined by Elisa Garn. I actually was following Elisa on LinkedIn and saw a bunch of her amazing posts that she was doing. And I thought, what the heck, I'll reach out to her and see if she would like to be on the podcast. And luckily, she accepted my invitation. So, Elisa, welcome to the HR Like a Boss podcast. Thank you. I can't think of a better co-brand than HR Like a Boss. This is where I should be. So for those that don't know you, please take a few moments to share a little bit about your background, your career, and passion for human resources. Sure. Uh, I, like many people that are in HR, have the the tried and true story that uh, fell into it. I actually had a super amazing mentor when I was 19. I was working at a ski resort and just, you know, for the for the free ski pass for the season, figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, and, I, and the HR director asked me to stay on full time uh, at the end of the season. And I was like, no, I have no interest in being the principal's office of the company. No, thanks. Um, but you know, two, three conversations later, he, he sat down with me and, and gave me a few highlights of why he thought I had a great career in HR. And you know, I was 19 and impressionable. And I was like, all right, sure. Let's, let's do this. 15 years later, I've had everything from, you know, the administrative payroll benefits all the way up to executive HR, took a four-year stint doing recruiting for HR professionals at an agency, uh, and got to know really just the ins and outs of the profession on a much grander scale than just my own experience. Um, And then from there, I did a little bit of consulting, tried my hand at that. Uh, I went into corporate branding for a hot minute because I really wanted to take what I was passionate about on employer brand and figure out how to do that to an HR audience with an insurance company for a couple of years um, to where I'm at most recently, which is just joining on as a CEO founder, launching a startup company on a marketplace platform to help mentors and mentees connect. Um, So in between, you know, I've pursued certification. I have years and years of experience serving in SHRM volunteer roles, Disrupt HR. If it has anything to do with HR and it's in the state of Utah, my name's probably been on it at some point. Yeah, I could tell that that was one of the attractions on your LinkedIn profile. Disrupt HR has been a big part of my life professionally, and we're organizing the first ever Disrupt HR in Columbus, Ohio, of all things, which I know the first Disrupt was in Cincinnati, so it's hard to believe what eight, 10 years later We'll finally be putting on an event in Columbus here in May, but really cool story. You're not short of ambition, and it sounds like we have a lot in common with recruiting in HR and disrupt HR and working with technology, so super excited to have you on today's show. Thank you. So, Elise, I'm going to start off with my standard, get things going, get the juices flowing on all things HR. So, how would you describe the purpose of human resources? HR, I think that the, when you look at the history of the profession and where it started, it really started, it was rooted in protecting people. And I mean, protecting people in terms of like making sure they didn't die at work. <laughs> you know? So we've evolved. We've got some laws that have been placed over the years and we've got, uh, we've got OSHA and we have a lot more eyes and, uh, and ears on the wall of, of our workplaces to make sure that those things aren't happening anymore. But 
it really hasn't changed that much, in my opinion. I think that the purpose of HR inside any organization is to create an environment and foster an environment where people can do their best work and uh, feel valued for the work that they are providing um, and feel like they can bring their whole selves to, to that place without having to mute or negate or dismiss or justify who they are and the way that they take up space. So it gets, you know, I think that my personal take, and I think that we have this shared alignment that HR really has, it is, it is probably the profession that has the ability to change and shape the world on such a grand scale. You know, when you think about, let's say I'm an HR professional inside an organization that serves a hundred employees. So if you look at that in terms of like, okay, well, I'm creating policies and practices and benefit programs and experiences for hundred people, those people still go home at the end of the day to families and spouses and children and neighborhood and, you know, church groups and all of these things that, that they, the lives that they touch. And it's, it's proven there's research out there to show that when you're more engaged in your work, when you feel that you are accepted and you have a sense of belonging that, um, you know, that you don't have to dismiss who you are, you're going to be a, a better person. You're going to be a better spouse and a better parent and a better neighbor. And so that ability in my mind is, is what HR is all about. It, it truly is about shaping a better world for all of us through better workplace experiences. Yeah, certainly a cornerstone of the reason for the podcast and the book. It's a big deal to me to hopefully influence someone or many I hope in, in seeing the, the power that HR has, really great HR has, and it's a, it, on the contradicting that point, on the opposite end, a really bad HR can have a really unique effect. And people are, are really, I see they're, they're moving with their feet when it comes to this, because I think the pandemic has caused those that maybe question whether they were really doing something they loved or were engaged in. They're just like, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm out. I've, 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 I've I've seen something that's causing me to take action. And I think uh, in that sense, it's really, really great. Yeah. Life's too well, short. It is. Got to do something you love, especially when you're spending all that time working and doing things away from your family, but you better really enjoy it. Agreed. So take that as a motivation, HR, to find, find what people love and loathe and get them more in the places where they love. And you end up seeing, my guess is a tremendous amount of better results and more engaged uh, team members. So well, speaking of that, you had a, a recent LinkedIn post about engaging and compelling online courses, uh, what, what, what it takes to build something like that. And I selfishly am curious of your answer because we're trying to build an offshoot of HR Like a Boss and this uh, HR cohort, amazingly awesome HR concept as a follow-up to the book. So what did you mean by finding that compelling, engaging online course? And, and what did your, your post yield you as far as Intel? All right. So... <laughs> Um, first and foremost, I just have to, to put this out of the gate. LinkedIn, the reason that we're even connected, LinkedIn is my love language. I'm on that thing hours and hours and hours every day. It is, it is my social media of choice. I'd say it's my guilty pleasure, but I don't feel that guilty about it. So the post that you're referencing was a, a recent announcement of my job change. And what I was sharing was why I chose to take yet another pivot in my career and take you know, basically leverage what I've done in HR and what I've learned and how I've been able to um, grow as a business professional outside of uh, what I considered more of my micro career as an HR professional and take that into this, um, this content that I had been, had been trained on by the organization that I joined. 
Um, the, the reason it was so compelling is it's, it's proprietary, of course, but the way that it teaches things is the way that I have been saying for years, like screaming at HR professionals, start with the end in mind. You've got to do like when you build things in HR, you need to do it through the lens of what employees want, of what a CEO wants. If you want to drive adoption, if you want to have an impact, if you want to make change, you've got to do it with the end in mind and work your way backward from that. And this framework that I had learned, um, some of it was online, but most of it was this in-person uh, course that I had gone through. That's exactly what they teach. They take a traditional bow tie funnel of, you know, lead generation up at the top, and then you disseminate, disseminate it down to purchase. And then, you know, and then what happens? And they basically taken that and flipped it on its side to a bow tie funnel of, yeah, you have a sales experience process. And at point of purchase, you still amplify that funnel on the other end, which is driving what we call long-term or lifetime value of, you know, of an employee or of a, uh, you know, of a relationship or of a customer. And you have to do it through that brand ambassadorship of like, why do they keep coming back? Why would they continue to, to work with you in this way? Or why would they uh, evangelize others to come and use your product? And so when you start with that particular point and then work your way back through the funnel to the top of the funnel, you get significantly better results. So this shouldn't be like this crazy aha thing, but I think the reason it resonated so much with me was this company at the time I joined them wanted to take this and then turn it into a more of a digital platform experience to be able to take it to more individuals to help them understand essentially how to make better decisions. It's a, it's a decision-making framework of not, not thinking through the lens of what you think you know or what you think is best for other people and doing it like in a design thinking element of, again, put your customer first, empathize, and start with the end in mind. Um, so as I mentioned at the beginning of my in my intro, we're pivoting away from that and we're actually turning this into a mentorship platform. So I, <laughs> I wish I could tell you, oh, we've already built this and we figured it out and I'm here to tell you all the things and mistakes that we made so you can do it better. Um, but <laughs> I think that I'm probably gonna have to learn from you because we're not going that direction anymore. Understood. No, I certainly will steal some of those ideas, especially the ones that work the best. I know that uh, legally doing that feels like the right thing to do and, and learn from others' mistakes. I know in, in my own experience, uh, when I lose, it hurts and it's more painful and you learn more than when you win or do something right. So uh, congrats on the quick pivot. And I wish you nothing but the best as I know this endeavor is really important to you. Speaking of something I know that's important to you is mentor, mentorship. And I know that's kind of one of the things that you're, you're moving toward. I'm just curious as to what what that means to you specifically, maybe some experiences you've had on some, some mentorship relationships that either, either, either way that have meant a lot to you in your life. Well, mentorship is one of those things that I think gets convoluted quite a bit in, in discussions, because when you think of mentorship, it often gets lumped in with coaching and advising and sponsoring, and they're all very different. You know, the capacity in which you engage with each other, the expectations, the parameters, all of that, it differs, you know, from expectation to expectation. And I think for me, mentorship is one of those things that has meant so much in my HR career because I didn't know that I was being mentored until after the fact. Now I've, I've progressed enough in my career and I've had enough of those experiences that I can proactively go out and whether it's through 
a formal mentor of like, hey, let's sit down. I've got these questions. Where do I go? Um, but I also, what I consider, I have a lot of silent mentors, meaning these are people that I look up to, that I watch, um, that I pay attention to, to what they do and how they make decisions. And I consider that an influence on, on how I'm going to grow, but it doesn't necessarily mean there's a, a particular engagement on both of our parts. So I think mentorship means different things to different people, but what it's meant for me is um, very much a relationship and human-centric uh, growth plan. I didn't go to university. I didn't go to college. That was not, uh, I'm not, <laughs> I don't think that I'm cut out for university life. Frankly, I can't read books and I hate studying unless it's like on audible. And then I can do that all day long, but textbooks, no way. So knowing that I needed to learn in a different capacity. And like you said, I had these ambitions. There's a lot of things that I wanted to accomplish and I had no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm doing right now. I'm launching this business and I have literally five mentors that I reach out to. This is the person that I go to for funding. This is the person that I talk to on engineering. This is the person that I talk to on how to build a business model. I have no idea. But I have built and surrounded myself with these mentors that fill in those gaps for me. I call them silly putty people. They like can just squish into all the areas that I don't know or I don't understand and really help me feel like a rounded professional in, in the places that, I'm, that I have these deficits. Um, but the bigger advantage, I think, on a grander scale outside of just me, um, mentoring, I believe, is one of the catalysts for change going into how all of our, not, I shouldn't say all, but <laughs> you'll appreciate this as HR. So five years ago, 10 years ago, there was all of, like, you went to any HR conference and all we were talking about was big data and AI. And it's eliminating jobs all over the place and everybody's going to, you know, like nobody's going to have a job and robots are going to take over the world. And there was all these like, you know, sky is falling conversations happening. But now, you know, things have leveled and what we've recognized is that's not actually the case. But what is happening is we're having to adapt the jobs that do exist. So, yes, artificial intelligence is changing the landscape of work and the skills demand and some of those things. But the capacity for us to go to traditional models of education, whether that's university or boot camps or, you know, trade, whatever it happens to be, it's, it's too slow. I mean, things are just changing so frequently. And so mentorship for me has been that opportunity to learn and leverage skills that are applicable and relevant today that are going to be something that helps me get ahead in my career without feeling like I'm already obsolete. Um, and then of course you have the, the relationship factor, you know, when somebody knows who you are, the best jobs that I've ever had did not come from submitting a resume or going through a traditional application process. They came through referrals and almost always through mentors. Yeah, that's powerful. I, it's interesting. I'm in a book club through the Cleveland Sherm organization and we're reading Radical Candor. And there was a conversation that was had at the very end of the book club that reminds me as you were talking, Elisa, on, on the concept of your very first mentor setting the bar, this very first boss in, in these occasions, there were four people out of the 20 or so that are in the book club. So my very first boss was my best boss, was a mentor, is, you know, it motivated me, inspired me, gave me all these things. And I, I've been looking for that on every job since, and I haven't gotten it. And there was this idea like as you were sharing is just finding these mentors in other ways other than your boss as an example to be able to get as you called it kind of sponges or the silly putty to give you 
little pieces, parts of, of what expertise they have. So that's really interesting, powerful stuff. As I think of the mentors I have and still have to this day, it's really interesting the amount of passion and support and care and love, honestly, that they give you. That's really amazing in your journey of, of success and failure. And they'll be there for you no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we thanks for letting also- me uh, give my little rant on that. It's obviously a big passion of mine. And I think it's uh, yet another one of those opportunities to help shape and influence the world for the better. Yeah. And I hope none of my junior or senior college professors are listening to this, but I made it through my junior and senior year of college without buying any textbooks. because I'm the exact same way. I cannot read books. I can't sit down and pay attention. I can listen to audible books all day long, like you shared. And that's one of the motivations for me writing this book is that I need to create an audio book for it. And that's for an unknown author. That's an interesting challenge, but we're going to make it happen. Yeah. You're a figure it outer. You'll get this done. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of that, I'm going to take a quick second to take a pause to give a, a, a shout out to our sponsor. This sponsor is near and dear to my heart. Uh, Willery has supported the formation and continues to provide resources needed to put on this podcast. Willery's purpose is to empower people and is focused on supporting mid-sized companies with search and staff augmentation services, along with a unique client-side HR technology consulting practice. So if you're struggling to find talent for your HR and payroll teams, or you're not getting the return on your investment in your HR technology, please visit willery.com. That's W-I-L-L-O-R-Y.com. They do okay? It's kind of awkward to give a shameless plug to your own firm, but they well, are paying hey, the bill, so to speak. <laughs> when you do good work, like it's not a shameless plug. It's uh, you're providing value. So trying our best. All right. So I think this was the actual blog that caught my attention and, and started following you on LinkedIn about this concept of bro culture. And for a leader owner of my firm that I, I have uh, four uh, female leaders, women leaders on my leadership team, it's an interesting dynamic of which I know can really be a thing. And I, I, loved, I loved your article. So I wondered if you could share a little bit about what that blog meant to you and some of the responses that you got. All right. Well, I have to be cautious here because it's, even though I have these really, really like opinionated rants every once in a while, it's never through the lens of exclusion. Like, I don't think that men are bad people. I don't think that women are bad people. I think that people are people. And sometimes we just aren't aware of how we show up in the world. And that particular post, um, so I'll share this. I, you know, when you look at how business was formed, when we started leaving our cute little, you know, ranches and farms and decided we're going to move into cities and we're going to work in the industrial Um, the machine shops, and we're going to exchange time for money instead of growing our own food. That was done through the lens of men, because at the time, what was culturally appropriate was men were better suited for that environment. And by the way, kind of rightfully so, Uh, going back to the beginning of HR, right? Like (laughs) men were more likely to survive the conditions of those working environments than women or children. Um, But what was happening is business was being formed and and envisioned by men through the lens of men. So this is not to say that it's right or wrong. It's just a fact and reality that men have certain attributes, women have different attributes. And at the time that this was being shaped in business, it was um, uh, a lot more prevalent in terms of like what, what those gender roles look like. So, you know, you've evolved over all of these decades and yes, things have changed a little bit, but 
as more and more women started joining the workforce, and when you start to look at the gender science behind how women process conflict and how men process conflict and how women would uh, even articulate what success looks like versus a man, uh, just I won't go into the, all the details, but if somebody is listening that's super interested in this topic, there is a wonderful book about gender science that actually goes into tons of research and study that has been done clear back to the 1960s. It's called Hardball for Women. Um, love, love, love the women that put this book together. I've read it twice. I've heard them speak at conferences. But one of the things that they share in the research is as children, when you look at how kids play, and they've, they've researched this in different countries, they've researched it in different demographic, you know, age range, all the way to uh, monetary income of the household, uh, and even those that like indigenous peoples, you know, like that still live in tribes. The way that boys and girls play when they're young shows up in how we, we process things later in life. So for example, boys are much more likely to engage in activities that have a start and a stop and a goal. So when you think about sports, you have clear rules. This is how you play the game. This is when we start. This is who wins. This is who loses. And then when it's over, it's over and we're done. And we leave it on the field, so to speak. But girls, when girls are playing at young ages, we could be playing with the same toys. You can put us into a room with the same stimuli but we're looking at more of how are we connecting emotionally to this? How can we build relationships and leverage the other people in this environment? So this is why we play games that don't have a purpose or a goal. We play house, we play nurse, we play, you know, like we want, we, we want to foster relationships with the other kids that we're playing with. And even if we're just on our own, we're wired to protect the relationship over everything else. So this is why you'll see if there's conflict between she has my doll and I want that girls are much more likely to figure out a compromise at, at very young ages, whereas boys will stand their ground and they'll kind of say, you know, this is what I want and <laughs> I'm going for it. This all of this to say, as we grow up and we enter the workforce, this doesn't go away. So now you have women that are in this male environment, you know, what's, what's kind of been transcribed as success in a male environment, which is typically, you think of things like, um, gosh, uh, you know, do you have, like, do you have grit? Are you willing to do whatever it takes? Will you work those extra hours? Do you have ambition? Do you have drive? Do you have pride? Uh, negotiation tactics, like all of these things that are much more about the individual hunt than about the relationship-based community. And women oftentimes are at a disadvantage there. Uh, so, you know, not to, not to get completely off topic in terms of right or wrong or how it should be, but I share this as a preface to what I consider bro cultural, which is rampant where I live in Utah, rampant. I love Utah with all my heart. I will live here until the day I die. And if anybody tries to tell me that their state is better than mine, I will fight you. I will fight you because I love Utah so much. But man, we are weirdos. We are total weirdos when it comes to how we engage with gender, we engage with politics, we engage with religion, and it shows up in the workplace every single day. Um, without malice, without negative intent, it just is. Uh, and what you, what you tend to see is very young entrepreneurs that start these businesses. You know, we've got three universities that spit out incredible MBA talent all over the state. 
And then they all want to go make their mark and build their unicorn company and have an exit and make their millions and go be lifestyle CEOs, you know, on yachts in Florida or whatever. So you have this churn that's constantly going of young entrepreneurs that are trying to make their mark. They build a very successful company. They hire people just like them that know the same sports teams and go to the same churches and have the same friend communities because it's very incestuous in that way. You know, we like to work with people we're comfortable with and it's natural to adapt to what's like us. So what ends up happening unintentionally is these are the people that as they start to hire women have no freaking idea that they're alienating the women in the workplace by things like we're going to have a team activity and we're going to go shoot guns or we're going to have a team activity and we're going to go skiing for the day. Like not all women want to do stuff like that. And sometimes it can be really intimidating. Like for example, I worked for a company that wanted to go on a a boat cruise for a weekend, you know, rent a houseboat for our 20 employees. And there was three women and the rest were men. And we're like, I don't want to be in a bikini, basically my underwear around my coworkers. Like this is so uncomfortable, but again, it's not on purpose. They're not doing this to, to try to make women feel bad or, you know, body shame them or anything. It's just, it's just a a lens that they can't see through like tampons in the, in the bathroom. You know, what man would think of that? Like you can't even say tampon without blushing. So knowing that there is this the separation and disconnect of how women show up in the workplace and how men show up in the workplace and that bro culture, it takes true intent to lean in, to try to understand what that looks like and engage with the women and the others, the other minorities of your workplace to shape and design experiences where everyone feels that sense of belonging. Doesn't mean they're going to get it right every time, but I think we're more willing to forgive it if we at least see that they're trying. Most of them don't try. Mm. Yeah, interesting point there. Yeah, the level of effort, do your best, the best you can, and just try to get a little bit better at it, and especially something that can be that sensitive. And you had a light bulb go off for me as you were explaining that, that now I know why I don't like playing the game Minecraft, because there is there is no point to Minecraft, and there's no winner and loser, although I guess you can <laughs> knock someone up, someone's house down or beat them up with a pickaxe, but... I try not to do that. I never understood that game. My kids are so into it, especially my daughter. So that now makes a ton of sense. There you go. I'm telling you that book, especially on Audible, Hardball for Women is, oh, it doesn't teach a woman how to be a man. It just basically says, look, this is what work looks like. And these are some of the terms that you should probably know in order to be able to communicate in the right language. Yeah, good for you. Thanks for sharing that. All right, just a couple more questions. So we talked about a number of things and I know HR is important to you. Most of our audience is out there listening is HR professionals. So you you, you and I, uh, in preparation for today, talked about this idea of HR has a PR problem. And I'm curious to get your take on what that means. Yeah, I'll, I'll be much more succinct on this one because I don't think it's news to most people that HR um, isn't usually well-liked. <laughs> But I think that when when you ask most employees, most people that just work and you ask them what their what their take is on HR, it's very much like I said at the beginning, you know, like it's it's the police officer of the company. It's the principal's office. It's where people go when they get in trouble. And we know better than that. We know that what we're trying to do is help people. We know that our purpose is to actually eliminate barriers and try to make the workplace better for people. 
but we mess it up all the time, <laughs> all the time. So even though we have positive intent, we end up kind of shooting ourselves in the foot a little bit. And I think even more so with the C-suite where uh, this goes back to what I was saying about, you know, empathizing with your audience and starting with the end in mind, especially with the C-suite. If you want to have credibility with your employees, with your management team, with your team that you manage, you've got to learn how to say things in a language that they understand. If I go to Spain and I expect everybody to speak English because I speak English, um, that's number one, extremely arrogant. <laughs> but number two, I'm probably not going to have a lot of success in that environment. And it's the same thing in HR, wherever we're going, whether we're talking to our team members, whether we're talking to the C-suite, whether we're talking to a group of employees that are about to be laid off, we've got to do it through their language and understand their point of view in order to be able to create those better connections to feel true empathy. Otherwise it's gonna come across as super disingenuous. Yeah, huge point of that, the empathetic listening, uh, the ability to do that and put yourself in someone else's shoes and walk with them with whatever experience they're going through is a, is a, is a powerful gift and a, a, learn, a learned skill that most of us don't have to back to your point earlier, if someone steals your football or baby doll, you hit them over the head and take it back. That, that doesn't have a lot of empathy or really listening in it, but you, you learn that over time. All right, so last thing, I'll get you out of here on this and hopefully something that my, my listeners are, are getting today from your particular uh, sentiment and, and insight. I really appreciated you being on the show today, but I get all of my guests out of here on this idea of how would you describe someone that does HR like a boss? Well, excuse me. I think that uh, HR like a boss is probably more mindset than anything. Like if you're going into it with the idea that number one, it's possible. And number two, you're doing it through, um, through empathy and the understanding of, of what the purpose can be, but um, ensuring that you have the right tools and filling in the gaps where you don't to elevate yourself, to be able to have that influence. I think it really, the biggest, the most important thing to me is do you have the right mindset of what this can be and the purpose behind it? And the rest, I feel like just kind of dominoes from there in terms of being able to, to follow through and then deploy that kind of impact. Yeah, cool. Yeah, we, we start the book out with the uh, own it and love it mindset. To me, it's, it's critical for people, at least in being a boss, not necessarily a, a person with direct reports, but just being really good at what they do and having that confidence starts with, you got to really love what you do because you're going to have some bad days and you're going to deal with some crappy stuff. And then you, you got, you got to own it. You got, you got to take it like it's your own thing, whatever that is, however you can position that in your head. So I really appreciated you being on today's show. I want to take just a few uh, seconds just to do a quick recap on a couple of things that you said, Elisa, that stood out to me. So what, what HR was, was the principal's office for a company. That's what it was and shouldn't be, shouldn't be that protecting people in the sense of literally protecting them from uh, dying on the workforce or, or what happened uh, many, many years ago. It's more about helping us to make sure we're finding, finding the right people within our organization so they can do their best work, so they can feel incredibly valued for what it is that they do. They can increase their level of engagement. You talk specifically about that online course about starting with the end in mind and trying to find people to become evangelist for your whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. So thinking about a strategy or maybe it's a program you're putting in place in your HR, 
Like what's the end game we're trying to achieve with this and then backing from a strategic standpoint into the tactics that need to be completed. Talked about the importance of mentorship, eliminating barriers, and you use the word empathy. I have an empathy meter on my uh, counter here. I think it was at least five times I'm a huge uh, empathy uh, kind of guy, so appreciated that. And last but not least, you, you recommended a couple of times this book called Hardball for Women. So go check that out to the HR Like a Boss listeners. And Elisa, I really appreciate you being on. I hope you enjoyed yourself. Yes, thank you, John. I'm I'm always happy to connect with uh, fellow uh, evangelists. So, thank you for the for the invite to to share some of my knowledge and sharing yours as well. I appreciate that. Thank you for checking out the HR Like a Boss podcast. If it resonates with you, please consider leaving a rating or review, and better yet, subscribe and share with a friend. Until next time, let's continue to aspire to do amazingly awesome HR.